Navigating high school can be difficult for many teens. It can be downright impossible for teens in foster care. But Treehouse's educational advocates are trying to turn the tide. Kyra News Radio's Chris Sullivan has a story. Doug and Laura Adamson say they didn't know what they didn't know when they became foster parents. They knew they had love in their hearts, an empty bedroom, and the desire to help children find a stable road to the future. They were open to helping children of any age, but they found older kids and teenagers were a perfect fit. There are an awful lot of foster parents who line right up to help out with the newborns and help out uh, with the younger children, those still in diapers. But there's a significant need for those who are older kids, especially the teenagers. But teenagers come with extra challenges, especially when it comes to school. And that's where Treehouse helped the couple understand those challenges and keep their 17-year-old foster child on track. They helped us navigate the high school. They had a special person who had worked within this existing school system, an educational specialist that spoke the school district's language knew the things that this child needed and tailored a plan to keep this child on the path to success. Donations to Treehouse helps the agency provide these educational advocates who, along with the foster family, keep the children focused on what's possible and that they can succeed in life. Laura Adamson says that personal advocate was essential in their child's development. The educational specialist met with him once a week. She was a trusted person, not the caregiver, not the parent, not a teacher, someone he really liked and he could confide in her if if he if he chose to. Trusting that educational advocate helped this young man navigate school, both academically and socially, and kept his eyes on the future. He was able to apply for their driver's ed program, and they helped pay for the car insurance. They bought him a cell phone and paid for the cell phone plan. So those were two big expenses. Expenses that many foster parents cannot provide, but are key to a child about to age out or launch into adulthood. And all you need to look for when considering your donation to Treehouse is success. And for Doug Adamson, this is the epitome of success. Their knowledge, their expertise, their desire to help this child was fantastic. And I'll tell you what, Thanks in part to them, this kid was the first in four generations to graduate from high school. That's what Treehouse and loving foster parents can do, but only with your help. Chris Sullivan, Cairo News Radio. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross, along with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan this morning. The average onset of puberty is about two years earlier than a generation ago, and well over half of tweens and teens report body image issues. The average age of the first exposure to porn is 12 for boys and not much later for girls. So what are kids and parents like Colleen and I to make of all of this? What what could any adult be making of this right now? We are joined this morning by local experts on puberty, Julie Metzger and Peter Metzger, the team behind the long-running puberty education workshop series, Great Conversations. Thank you both for being here this morning. Oh, it's great fun. Julie, let's start with you. You literally invented this curriculum. You wrote it yourself 30 plus years ago. Take us back to the very beginning. How did this start? Sure. I was at graduate school, nursing at University of Washington. I sat in a study carol looking at data on where do people learn about 
puberty and sex. And a lot of people reported they learned it from their moms. And so I thought, well, that would just imagine those conversations. Some of them are on a five-hour drive to Spokane. Some of them are with very scientific books. Some of them are uh, muffled and almost, you know, not even existing. And I thought, what if... What if you could actually sit with a parent and learn together from an expert? And what if it was fun? And what if it was funny? And I thought right there, I could do that. That that totally lights my fire. How and did that's you, how started. How did you even begin to develop that curriculum? Because so many parents have different levels of comfort, different levels of knowledge themselves. So how do you invite a diverse group of parents and their children in? Yeah. Who all have different comfort levels. So we're talking to two generations and we're talking, as you say, to a wide audience of people who may be more conservative, may be very, um, you know, have a different idea, certainly from the person that's sitting next to them. And I think one of the things that we've done really well is that we're medically accurate and developmentally appropriate. And we're constantly thinking on those two things, first and foremost, so that that instantly makes our audience go, I belong here. So that part, and that's always our goal, is to find that space where people have room also to talk with each other about things that are important to the, to their family about these things along the way, along the conversation, so that you can check in and say, in our family, we believe, and there's room for that. And in the room, there's room for that. Nice. Medically accurate and familial conversation, which leads me to you, Peter, because you are quite literally Julie's son and you are a doctor. How did this partnership come to be? Because it couldn't have started 30 years ago. You were not presenting as a... I was pregnant with Peter at my very first class. That's amazing. Yeah, isn't it? And now you are a co-host. I I suppose that this means that the partnership did begin at the very beginning. I guess it did. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think um, I have always known that I was going to have a career taking care of children and I now am a general pediatrician, which I uh, absolutely love. And I realized in the work that I was doing that having 20 minutes with a family one-on-one often just wasn't quite enough to help people come to the understanding that I really hope that they can come to when it comes to these topics. And uh, I've, we have always known that, Julie, my mom, is the puberty lady, and that has always been just a deep part of our family's life, um, having her out in the evenings to teach. Um, And so that was always this open invitation to join in that conversation. And, And then my participation became more involved when Julie asked if I wanted to start teaching the online version of the course. Uh, over COVID. And that was also when I had sort of finished up some of my medical training and I had more time to do that. And I was realizing that I wanted to be able to teach this in more depth and have more fun in a way that was outside of the clinic. Tell us what is exactly, what is it that you teach? What is your curriculum? I think that's the big question that parents have before they dive in. Well, first our audience is 10 to 12 year olds and a grown up, And that grown up can be a parent. It might be a grandparent, might be just a really trusted adult that comes along with them and you sit side by side. 
when we our virtual class, which is five workshops of about 40 minutes, 45 minutes each over a period of time, covers the same content as our in-person. In-person is four hours of content over two evenings and uh, generally a week apart. And our goal is to spend time talking about puberty for all bodies and uh, also the emotional, the parts of our brain that change in puberty and our emotional parts of that. And then how our emotions and brain work together to be a sexual person. And we explore our emotions, how we make decisions, how we, um, how we, how we create personal boundaries and consent around our bodies. And then we talk about sexual reproduction and what, what that's about. And, um, we cover kind of this whole arc so that people see how these bodies grow and change and how they go to work. What's your favorite piece of information to give to your classrooms, each of you? The the, the fact or the information that you know everybody's going to go, oh, what? It's tough. I think what is perhaps the most fun for me is when you just get the audience to, to laugh along with you because you, you see that folks are engaged and I mean, that comes from everything from just throwing a picture of, you know, anatomy on the board and making it kind of funny and just calling out that this is you don't even have to say that it's awkward. You just get to sort of laugh in the moment with everybody. <laughs> and I, for me, it's then saying, hey, this is a penis and these are testicles and people chuckle. And then you get that's when you know you have people's attention and you then get to blow their mind by talking about how those work. Mm -hmm. um, I I. I'm going to answer your question in a slightly backwards way. Somebody came down um, yesterday at the end of the class and they, it, this gentleman had a beard, was bald and said, I would like one of these period packs to take to have in my coaching bag. Uh, did he say that he yeah. taught young women or he didn't? Yeah, he, he just, just said, I need it for my coaching yeah. bag. And so we were left like, just going, we have no idea exactly what that means. Is it he's going to pull it out at some point or not? Um, the or have point it there, just in case one of his just, yes. just in case it was, we have it no was, idea. But that for me, yeah. just yeah. that just summarized the entire purpose yeah. of this class wow. and why we're doing it the way that we're doing it now. And and that's all that we needed to see. I mean, I left with all the critiques that we had of the way that we explain things, the way that we you know, need to change the class, um, last, last night. And, and, and then at the same time I was like, this, this is it. This is, it does those critiques don't matter because this is the lesson that we taught tonight. And for that one family and that one person that makes all the difference. Julie Metzger, Peter Metzger, the team behind Great Conversations, an ongoing and long-running puberty education workshop series available in person and virtually. We really appreciate your time this morning. We love being here. Thanks for inviting us. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington, an evergreen playground blessed by an unusual variety of natural attractions. Sometimes I just want to let this completely play out and hear the entire thing. But I'd rather hear from you, Felix. It's our resident historian, Felix Spinell, joining us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. A quick look at the stories behind the local stories and the places and the things we love. We're going to Vancouver Island this morning. There's a community there that's been home for like 40 years to the world's largest hockey stick. 
Apparently, they're getting ready, though, to say goodbye to this iconic roadside treasure. Yes, Dateline, Duncan, British Columbia. And the story was first reported by Justin McElroy of the CBC in Vancouver. Now, Duncan's on Vancouver Island in the Cowichan Valley, along the highway between Victoria and Nanaimo. Since 1988, Duncan's been home to the world's largest hockey stick. That hockey stick was originally commissioned for Expo 86, the World's Fair held in Vancouver, yeah. 37, almost 38 years ago. It was a big part of the Canada Pavilion. And I was at Expo a few times. I don't remember the big hockey stick. I have to be honest about that. And just how big is it? It's more than 200 feet long. It's made from Douglas fir and steel and weighs about 60,000 pounds. Holy it's, moly. It's really big. Yeah. They're not kidding. Um, it's mounted to the roof and the front wall of the Cowichan Community Center, which has an ice rink inside, of course. It's very distinctive. I put some pictures at my Facebook page. Now, Tom Duncan is a city councilor in the town that shares his name. He's also chair of the uh, Recreation Commission. So as you were driving through Duncan, uh, you would see this huge hockey stick. So it, it was a, a bit of a tourist attraction. We had it set up also uh, so that you could uh, stand at a certain spot and then make a pose and look like you were holding up the biggest hockey stick in the world. Uh, no charge to you know stop in and see it. But there was some uh, information on the inside of the building and some uh, souvenirs available, like small big sticks. And uh, coffee cups and, and, and things like that that had the logo on there. I like the small big stuff. Yeah, me too. Now, that's, all things sounds great. Sounds idyllic. What's wrong, right? But earlier this year, it was discovered that weather and a woodpecker or two. No! I know. Have damaged the wood, and the giant hockey stick needs major repair. Like, major repair. Very expensive. Perhaps more than a million dollars. Whoa. Now, the city of Duncan did a survey over the summer. Now, we know these surveys can go. Um, 70% of the respondents said, don't spend the money. So instead, the city will auction it off to the highest bidder to be determined, and it will be gone sometime in 2024. So once that happens, what will that recreation center look like without the hockey stick? Yeah, it's just going to look like a lot of those other uh, box-type buildings uh, in that era. It was uh, a lot of uh, just sort of make sure that you had good amenities on the inside, and there wasn't a lot of money spent on architecture on the outside. If this was a Ron and Don show, I'd have a wah-wah-wah sound effect there I'd play. Now, I also asked Tom Duncan how it will feel to be one of the people holding political office in Duncan when the city loses the big hockey stick, an iconic piece of its identity. He said, you know, that's politics. Sometimes you're viewed positively. Sometimes you're viewed negatively. You know, I think uh, what I'm doing uh, as chair of the commission uh, with the input of the residents that have responded to the survey and with the input of the other directors is we've done what we feel is prudent and fiscally responsible for the uh, Calton Valley region. Boo! Oh, exactly. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm supposed to be a journalist. I forgot. <laughs> and, uh, it's, very, it's very objective. Uh, it does seem to me like there's still time for an angel to step up and save the hockey stick, and in my opinion, save Duncan, both the city and the city councilor. Now, one person mentioned is Jimmy Patterson. He's a wealthy guy in his 90s, kind of the go-to rich guy for big stuff in British Columbia, much like Paul Allen used to be in mm -hmm. Seattle. Mm -hmm. There's been no word from Jimmy Patterson or his people so far. So meanwhile, I asked Tom Duncan if he had any bad puns to describe the situation. He was all too happy yes. to oblige. The puck stops here is a good one. Uh, you know, we've, we've gone into overtime to try and uh, find a solution. Uh, you know, we've checked every uh, possible angle. Uh, there's a few for you there. Anyway, so oh, let's. I hope so next time we talk about the big hockey stick that someone has stepped forward and the, and the people of Duncan have come to their senses and realized that survey's probably bogus yeah. and that they've got to save this. I mean, a million bucks or something that's been around for 40 yeah. years. If you split that out for over another 40 years, it's only $25,000 a year, if I'm doing the math right. Sell some naming rights or somebody. Some rich dude can name it Hockey McHockey Face and pay a million dollars for it or something. What is going on up there? All right, Felix, thank you very much. Margaret, this is Travis. Hi. All right. Uh, let's get right to it. <clears throat> 
Israel's military says it has struck hundreds of Gaza targets in the last 24 hours. But at the same time, U.N. humanitarian officials are warning the intensified fighting has all but incapacitated. Sorry, that's not enough coffee this morning. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield. Israel's military says it has struck hundreds of Gaza targets in the last 24 hours. But at the same time, U.N. humanitarian officials are warning that all this intensified fighting has absolutely incapacitated aid operations and that civil order is breaking down. We're turning now to moderator of Face the Nation and CBS News chief foreign affairs correspondent Margaret Brennan. Margaret, bring us up to speed where we stand. What's happened in the last 24 to 48 hours in the Israeli-Gaza war? We know there is more pressure on Israel to open up other gates to allow in aid to Gaza because, as you mentioned, the U.N. and that administering agency, UNRWA, uh, is warning that you're seeing a collapse of civil order in a truly catastrophic situation in a place that was already devastatingly poor uh, and incredibly densely populated. Now that densely populated um, refugee population is being pressed into the south where military operations are expanding and the United States is uh, really starting to use sharper language in cautioning Israel that they need to really uh, be a bit more careful because they're causing a high degree of civilian casualties. Just yesterday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said there is a gap between Israel's stated intent uh, to minimize casualties and what we're actually seeing. And we understand that the president made a phone call yesterday or was on a phone call yesterday with Israel's prime minister. Can you tell us how that went? We know that there were a number of things agreed on, like the aim of putting pressure on Hamas to allow the Red Cross in to see the hostages still being held uh, by that militant group. Uh, There was uh, agreement on, you know, the need to continue prosecuting that war, but also publicly the White House acknowledged that more aid needs to be allowed in. Israel needs to let that happen because they are controlling the ability to um, allow anything into the through the perimeter of the very small 25-mile Gaza Strip. There are uh, efforts to open up another gate um, that Israel controls uh, that would allow for aid to flow from Jordan. And right now, the only gate is into Egypt. Uh, Meantime, this morning, we are reading in The New York Times about some new and maybe growing fears about what Iran is doing with its Houthi-backed rebels in Yemen, these militia groups, and that that may be a strategy to escalate a larger regional conflict. Can you tell us about that? There has been concern from day one that Iran would... Um, really go head to head here, uh, not just with Israel, but with uh, attacks on the U.S. troops who still are in Syria and Iraq. Uh, To date, we have really seen their proxy forces, whether it's Hezbollah in Lebanon or whether it's some of these other uh, militias in Yemen or in Iraq, uh, take pot shots or fire rockets as they did at the U.S. uh, embassy in Baghdad last night. Um, You haven't seen U.S. casualties to date that would change the game for the Biden administration potentially, but the Biden administration is largely viewing this as um, uh, contained, but near uh, at a dangerous point near potentially escalating. And so that's really the attempt to, to keep a lid on this at a lower boil um, and to stop this from becoming a regional conflagration. 
Turning to the other war, the war in Ukraine, um, some domestic politics at play here, whether the U.S. is going to continue supporting with money the effort by the Ukrainian government to fend off the Russian invasion. Some debates taking place this week, specifically in the Senate. Can you tell us what happened there? Well, we are really stuck in these congressional negotiations in Congress, and we are facing a very short period of time before the end of the year, before they all head home for the holidays. So there's a lot of pressure right now to uh, do one thing in particular, which is for the border negotiations that are being led by Senator James Lankford, a Republican in the Senate, to come to an agreement that goes beyond the $14 billion request that Biden made for funding to help the U.S. border, and also make some policy changes like restricting the ability of some migrants to claim asylum and enter the United States. If that can get done, if there is agreement between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate and the possibility that maybe the thinly controlled Republican majority in the House would consider it, that might unlock the things you're talking about. Moderator of Face the Nation and CBS News Chief Foreign Correspondent Margaret Brennan. Margaret, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Back to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield, along with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. We are joined now by Heather Crandall of the White Center Food Bank. Heather, good morning. It seems like at this moment we're hearing from so many food banks that things have gotten dire in recent months, in the last year. Where do you stand right now? It's very true. Uh, in the words of our executive director, Carmen Smith, we have less to work with and more need than ever. Uh, as we actually probably expected, donations are down. Uh, funding opportunities, which really expanded during the pandemic, as well as monetary and food donations that really people really came out during the pandemic to support their community. All of those are down. Um, and so that's just decreased the available resources for food banks to get food to the community. And what- Sorry. Travis, go ahead. No, I I read that the U District Food Bank saw demand up like 40 percent year over year. Are you seeing a similar increase in demand? Yes, we are. I I don't have the exact numbers, but when I started at the food bank in 2021, January 2021, the high number we saw any given day was maybe 100 to 120 at most. And that's families. Uh, Lately, we nearly broke 300 one day in October. So we're seeing uh, quite a huge need uh, that's still increasing. And again, it's related to just increased need in the community because pandemic benefits are over for families too. Uh, for instance, the SNAP benefits were cut back in March. Um, pandemic uh, unemployment assistance has changed and has gone away, uh, things like that. So families are finding it harder to um, to make ends meet. Uh, just think about the last time you went to the grocery store or went uh, to purchase something that you normally purchased and went, gosh, what is what is this price? And think about how families who have less uh, are coping with that. It's just a lot harder when you have less to begin with. I recently got involved with the Edmonds Food Bank, which is in a similar situation as your food bank and others. More need and less resources out there. And I have to admit, I was pretty ignorant to how food banks worked when I first started volunteering there. So for those who have never set foot in a food bank, are interested in donating or helping, can you uh, let us know what is that process for fulfilling orders and getting them to those individuals or families? Yeah, it varies by every food bank. Uh, Every food bank's kind of on a journey of their own with the resources they have available. 
to um, transition into a grocery store model like the food bank at White Center has. Um, so every food bank's a little different in how they get food to the community, but the basics are the same across the board. We source food as an organization from a variety of different locations. A lot of food banks purchase food at cost um, when people donate financially. Uh, we receive a lot of food donations from the community, and so the goal is procure the food, make sure it's safe to give out, and then distribute it to customers in a variety of different ways. Some food banks hand food out to people uh, in boxes, some hand it out just in a line, uh, kind of like a farmer's market, and some food banks have a shopping uh, model set up where folks can come in with a grocery cart and shop for food on shelves like a grocery store. I actually enjoy the way it happens at the Edmonds Food Bank because I was a big fan of Supermarket Sweep. If you remember that yes. game show where you would go with a cart and you would you have a list of things you need to get. And that's how it works there. Where we get a list from the, the individual's order and then we do the shopping and then hand mm-hmm. the, the grocery bags over to the one who delivers it to the car outside. Uh, so if, if that also interests you, I, I think it's a fun volunteering opportunity as well, where there's something for everyone to do, depending on the skill set. How many volunteers do you have right now and how many would you need? In 2022, we had over 600 volunteers for the year. Uh, Any given day, uh, a good day of distribution for us is maybe over 25 volunteers. And we're moving into a new facility in the new year that will allow us to double, uh, potentially double how many customers we serve in the store. Uh, So we'll need quite a few more volunteers to help us either in the warehouse, putting out more food for community, or if heavy lifting feels less manageable, we need folks to help sort food and make sure it's safe to give out. And we love having people in the grocery store itself, helping people find the food they're looking for that they need and food that they want. So it sounds like you could use some more volunteers. You obviously could use some more donations. We're also wondering about specific items. If folks can't give money, mm-hmm. uh, what what things are flying off the shelves? Like what what things could folks be giving to y'all if they can't give money? If folks can't give money, they can absolutely give time. And food donations are also really valuable. And not just during the traditional Western holidays. At White Center Food Bank, we also celebrate Lunar New Year, uh, Cambodian New Year, Ramadan, and Juneteenth. Um, And so we like to purchase and provide special food during those special days as well for the community. So think about what foods you would like to see if you needed to go to a food bank. And that's a great place to start about what to donate. But what I've often heard when I'm in the food bank myself, most of the time I get asked if we have sugar and oil. Um, But people love to see coffee and tea on the shelves. Those aren't things people normally think to donate. really high quality rice is really critical for a variety of cultures. Um, And so uh, those are maybe a couple examples. And same with personal hygiene products. It was distressing to me to know that often feminine hygiene products, tampons, pads, things like that are in short supply always and donations are always needed that that sometimes the food bank has to ration you know eight tampons for a family with four women and that's just the reality of the donations for those products so could you talk a little bit more about the need for those items as well absolutely we actually don't see a lot of those come through so we 
really rarely even have a shelf in the grocery store devoted to hygiene products. We have what we get behind the scenes. And so if somebody asks, we can give it to them. But absolutely, it's very, very low. And, you know, another another thing that is pretty rare to see is pet food. Yes. We don't see a lot of pet food. And we have customers who regularly will ask if we have any cat or dog food for their love, their loved pets. Who is it that you're looking for for a volunteer? Because I feel like I bet if I went to you and I said, I want to help, but I don't have a lot of time, you could still probably say to me, well, if you give me an hour, you know, once a week or once a month, I could still put you to use. Absolutely. White Center Food Bank specifically, I find it really important to make volunteering as accessible as possible. I've always had a full-time job myself and found it really hard to find volunteer opportunities. And so For me, the most important thing for a volunteer to know is to be a good communicator. And if you want to volunteer once a month on a regular schedule or every so often as a sub because your schedule is really varied, we can make that work. Yes, we have a need for regular reoccurring volunteers who come once a week for an hour, for two hours, for four hours. That's fantastic. But even once a month, subbing in for grocery rescue, the role that goes out to those local grocery stores to pull that um, food off the shelves for food banks. Those volunteers are golden for me. So check with your local food bank to see what opportunities they have and what sort of schedule they uh, are open to with volunteers. But uh, the trend is only moving towards making volunteering more accessible. I know that um, Rainier Valley Food Bank and University District Food Bank have some opportunities where you don't even have to apply to volunteer to go get active. Heather Crandall of the White Center Food Bank, we really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. I really appreciate your time as well. Thanks for asking us to to share more. Today's commentary brought to you by Wafed Bank. Today, Jewish families down the street and around the world are marking the first full day of Hanukkah. But many of them are struggling with fear about how public their own celebrations should be. Historically, the Festival of Lights has meant families place menorahs in windows and in other public places. Yet this year, with the dramatic rise in anti-Semitism, hate and even violence, many of those families are second guessing how public they should be about their display of lights. In response, one L.A. area dad and actor, Adam Kulbersch, who isn't Jewish, says he and his six year old wanted to do something to show their Jewish friends and family members, neighbors that they were safe and supported in celebrating this holiday season. So. He asked around and he was told, yeah, this year it would be okay if your family displayed a menorah. And that's what they are doing. The response was instant and heartwarming. Other Jewish and non-Jewish families coming together. Non-Jewish families asking, can we do the same thing? Kolbers then started Project Menorah, which encourages all families, regardless of faith, to display lights and menorahs. It even allows you to go to their website and print out a paper menorah if you'd like to put it in your window, on your refrigerator, somewhere in your home. The website and social media accounts have seen tens of thousands of hits from 22 different countries in just the last few days. In previous years, there may have been concern among non-Jews that they were trying to adopt Jewish tradition or cultural appropriation. But that does not seem to be an issue this year. And to be explicit and very clear, this is not about taking a position when it comes to Israel or the war in Gaza. That is a debate that can and should happen elsewhere and in many other venues as it is happening. 
Instead, this is a simple gesture about showing fearful families and kids that it is safe for them to celebrate their own traditions. That's something we can all embrace. Let there be more light this holiday season and less darkness for all families. We're going to get to G. Scott in just a second. But first, let's get to Kate at the news desk with a quick update on your headlines. Yeah, Travis, we've got a couple stories for you. No car insurance could lead to your car being impounded. Spokane Valley Representative Leonard Christian has pre-filed a bill that would give police the discretion to impound a driver's car on the spot if it's the third time the driver could not provide proof of insurance. So three strikes and you're out. If that driver had previously caused an accident while driving uninsured, the impound would be mandatory. We also have heard two boat service is expected to return to the Edmonds Kingston ferry run within the next month. Managers say they can't give an exact date because it depends on an ongoing boat repair. Except for last weekend, the Edmonds Kingston route has been down to one boat for nearly two months. And no more daylight saving time in Washington. I know we talk about this all the time, but now there's a new tactic to keep us from changing our clocks. This week, a pair of state senators Republican Mike Patton and Democrat Monka Dingra filed a bill that would keep Washington in standard time year round. That does not require require congressional approval. So if approved, it could be enacted immediately. That means Washington would fall back next November and after that remain in standard time permanently. We'll have to see how where that goes. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Joining us now from the G and Ursula show, which you hear nine to noon right here on Cairo News Radio. G Scott. Mm. All right, let's talk Seahawks. Yeah. I mean, look. Six and six. They started things six, six and three. Then they lost three straight. And now we're headed toward the 49ers who things didn't go super well last time that we played. So where do we stand? (laughs) Please give me some good news. So it's (laughs) it's interesting that you say that, that things did not go well on that Thanksgiving night because that was just uh, a very terrible night. It felt like felt like it was probably one of my worst Thanksgivings in a while. However, of the last five games that Brock Purdy quarterback Mm -hmm. for the 49ers has played the worst game that he's played was against the Seahawks okay of the five I appreciate the positivity yeah I like where this is going yeah another positive thing about Brock Purdy their quarterback he makes $870,000 a year so he's not like one of these 30 40 million dollar quarterbacks I mean I'd still like to make that yeah he has a roommate in San Francisco he has a roommate so what am I trying to say I want to take everyone that's listening back to yesteryear, mm-hmm. back to 2013. Okay. And then you, you remember how that team was constructed. I'm not trying to say the personalities and the people, but how it was constructed. That's the San Francisco 49ers. Everything is just almost that way from the quarterback to the run game to the defense is really well. They have a quarterback like, hey, just don't mess things up. Just be cool. You got weapons. It's all there right now. 49ers are 9-3. and three. This is a really tough team. Now, that doesn't mean that the Seahawks can't win because it's football, right? It's the, the saying, any given Sunday. Any given Sunday. Right? They, they can yeah. win this game. The Seahawks need to win this game. I don't, like, seriously. If there's any game to really say what's going to happen the rest of the season, here it is. They have this game here. Then they'll come back home on Monday night to play against the Eagles, right, who are pretty decent at football. Mm-hmm. Then you start talking about going on a road to the Titans and then the Steelers back at home. 
What I'm saying is, is that this game right here is going to be the tale of everything. Mm-hmm. The Seahawks are six and six. The Rams are six and six as well. Mm-hmm. Well, if, as you guys know, the Rams have beat the Seahawks mm-hmm. twice, so therefore the Rams own that tiebreaker. So this season, I would say, is not going the way that a lot of us fans thought it would go. There's a lot of things that uh, has not happened very well. Uh, the Seahawks have lost three games in a row, and I don't remember. Matter of fact, I don't think during Pete Carroll's tenure here as head coach, he's ever lost four mm. games in a row, mm-hmm. right? So that's what's on the table, too. Gee, I think the thing that frustrates me and a lot of other Seahawks fans uh, about the three-game losing streak that we've been on is it's been a lot of there's not a ton that you can pinpoint as to the reason why they've lost those three games. It's been the defense is playing well. I mean, even in that San Francisco game, the defense played pretty well. The offense didn't play super well. The Rams game, the defense, I think, also played pretty well. And this final game against the Cowboys last week, the defense didn't play well, but the offense finally started to step up and play well. Can the team, do you think the team can kind of bring those two components together and play a full game of football on both sides of the field? I hope so. Is it possible? Yes. Should they? Yes. Do I think it's going to happen? I have not seen anything this season that shows me that this team will put together an entire game, right? So that's what's been happening. So I don't know. As of right now, it's, it's almost like going and getting ready for a date on a Friday night and the person stands you up, right? Ten Fridays in a row. Mm. Now, like, hey, can you show up on 11th Friday? Mm, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Geno Smith suffering from a groin injury right now. That's going to put the deck, deck even more stacked against them. Are they going to adjust their game plan in any way to try to compensate for the fact that he may not be as mobile? Yeah, good, 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 good question. Uh, that's why you have a backup quarterback, right? That's why you have the uh, Drew Locks of the world. And by the way, can Drew Lock do it though? Yeah, he can. I actually like Drew I was going to say, you have sung his praises before. I like Drew yeah, Locke. Yeah. I mean, the, the last time he was in there, he just went in there and threw interceptions yeah. a couple times. But you know who he reminds me of? Years ago, Brett Favre, when he would get in there, mm. one thing that made Brett Favre good is he didn't care. Like, he didn't care if he threw an interception. Yeah. So, there it is. I don't know. When I, Dak I like Prescott Drew. went out last year, Cooper Rush came in and won several games for them. I mean, all you have to do is keep him afloat. All right, go. we got to win <laughs> any given Sunday. Directly from your favorite coach. This is the best place in the world to play football. This is the Pete Carroll Preview, brought to you by Muckle Shoot Casino. Here's your host, Steve Ray. So, Pete, uh, again, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate you taking a few minutes to, to chat with us. Uh, this is, uh, you know, you have had a couple of extra days to get ready for the 49ers uh, in Santa Clara uh, as compared to the first time uh, that we met up with them. But let's talk first about how important just a couple of extra days can be to try to get a couple of guys healthy like Ken Walker, uh, Zach Charbonnet, Jordan Brooks. How are they all doing? How have they made it through practice up to now? Yeah, it, the the days are altogether different. You know, you can tell guys feeling a little fresh and they got a little spring in their, in their hop and and uh, much different than the extreme we were in on a Thursday night preparation, you know. So um, we, we're getting through it, and, and we're getting the good work done. The guys are really hauling butt around around the practice field, so it looks pretty good. Um, both Zach and uh, uh, and Kenny ran on Thursday, you know, uh, a little bit and got some work done. It looks like they're feeling pretty good, and uh, we'll see how it goes today. But they look to be like they have a real shot to, to be available. 
Uh, last time you played the Niners, of course, uh, on that short week. And you said that you guys didn't do as a team, you didn't do as, as good a job in preparation as you had hoped you would. So how is this second go around different aside from the amount of time you have, how well has preparation gone? Um, and how important is it for not just you and the coaches, but for the veterans on this team to also put that message out about here's what it takes to get ready for one of these games. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's so different, Rapes. You know, the, the time frame is so different. And we, we have historically always taken care of the players with the, with the thought first that we're going to make sure that their legs are as fresh as you can make them on a short week. Well, this is we're not in that situation. So we're back to routine. We, we prepared really well, well for the Dallas game, and we played well against Dallas and both sides of the football and did a lot of good things and played really hard for 60 minutes, and we're in it all the way to the last play of it. And uh, so we, with a little bit of a break, and now we come back again and recapture the mentality and the, the effort and the kind of the, the, the whole um, aspect of, of practice in a full week, we're ready to go. So we should we should be in good shape for it. Good. You're seeing all that this weekend as yep. we as you prepare for the Niners. Yep. Okay. Um when it comes to the the Niners, uh not a whole lot went right uh, and and I think on both sides of the ball. How then do you slow down an offense that's led by Purdy, McCaffrey, Debo, Samuel, Kittle, a lot of weapons. So when you go into thinking about how to how to defend these guys? What what do you start with? Well, you know, in the second half of that game, we felt like we we kind of regained our stride a little bit and, and played uh, head to head. And I, you know, we were we scored ten, they scored seven in the second half, and so we're, we're kind of taking that with us that we know that we can match up well enough to have a shot at, at playing really good football against these guys. Um, but we've we've got to make sure that, uh, that they're with the. The, the threats that they have, we've got to keep them under wraps. You know, we can't let them explode. They can be a very explosive team. So we've got to stay on top of everything. We've got to make sure we corral the runs and do a really good job in leveraging the, the, the perimeter game that they have and, and just keep the big plays from happening and make them have to work for it. And uh, if we do that, then then we'll, we'll give ourselves a chance to be in this football game and, and, and get a chance to go get it. Offensively, you put up 35 points uh, against Dallas. Now, yet another top five defense. It seems like every defense in the last four or five weeks have been in the top five. Uh, led by Bosa, Fred Warner. They got a lot of good athletes on that side of the ball as well. What do they like to do defensively, and what do you think you can do against them? Well, they, they play they play pretty straight up front. You know, they're they're an over team. I mean, they line up pretty much in the same looks most of the time. They mix three basic coverages against us. It's not the it's not the scheme as much as it is. The the players and they really cut it loose. They have a tremendous amount of experience in this in the defense, and so they get really fast uh, execution out of their linebackers and their second level guys. Meanwhile, the guys up front are, are roaring off the football all the time. It's designed for them to attack the line of scrimmage and, and try to get on the edges and, and create problems with their pass rush and the penetration that they can get, and then let the linebackers clean it up after that. Uh, very similar to how we played over the years, and in, 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 in all, but it's a uh, it's a really good scheme because Bosa's Bosa, and because Fred Warner's Warner. Warner's a great football player, and, and all the way along the ranks, the, the online scrimmage, they're really really good. So you have to out execute these guys, but you also got to not get knocked around. And so we got to be physical with the football. We got to make sure that we can run the ball so that we can do the things we want to do in the passing game. You said uh, after the Dallas game that that uh, penalties were a factor, and but you weren't going to blame anybody, uh, like officials, on all that. Um, I know you've you're able to coach up players, talk to them about you know what what happens in the in the game, but and this is this is me asking here. I don't want you to get in trouble, but how tough is it when you're watching the officiating and it seems to be, at least to me, sometimes inconsistent as to what's called and what's not called. 
Yeah, it, it, it's it's uh, it's really difficult. The game is hard enough anyway, you know, and it's hard enough to win and to play well and be competitive and all that. And then when the factors start to get out of kind of the players' control and the coaches' control, and and it, it just feels it it feels it's hard. And so uh, you know, we dealt with it. They dealt with it. You know, the, the Cowboys got penalized ten times in our game too. You know, yep. and so um, and there was you know when I send in plays each week, I send in a couple of theirs and on our thing just to see what they would mm-hmm. say um, and uh, to, just to get the evaluation you know from a different outlook um, because I thought there were some calls that weren't weren't right there either uh, but mo- for the most part um, it, it, it's a distraction to the game and when, when we have 20 penalties in the game and we have to, we have to clean up our end of it in every way that we can uh, I got no excuses for that but um, we also need we need a little cooperation here and uh, you know from their side too to let the game be played and, and uh, not, not get in the middle of it so much I felt like the, it was a game that was you know heavily officiated and it, it factored into the the ball game Let's end on uh, this note that Bobby Wagner is the Seahawks uh, Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee. Uh, I believe it's the second time he's been nominated. Right. Um, I can't think of anybody who would be better. Um, talk about the example. We, we've talked about so much about what he does on the field and as a captain and all that. But how about the example that he sets for those young guys and maybe even for everybody in the organization, all the oh, yeah, people upstairs right. as well. It, he, he does. His influence extends throughout the organization and it has for some time. Uh, he, he has been such a model of consistency and, and high character and, and just uh, great makeup. Uh, and he has just found his way to really be uh, inspiring to everyone. He, everybody loves him. Everybody sees him and knows him and understands him and knows where he's coming from and counts on him. And uh, in a way that, you know, few people are able to accomplish that in their lifetime. He, he's accomplished it here in this area and, and with our organization, certainly. And uh, this recognition is, is perfectly suited for him. Um, you know, he, he would be a tremendous winner of the award, too. He would represent in the, in the grandest of fashions. But uh, it, it's, it's the combination of things that he brings, you know, Raves, that makes him so special. He's tough. He's physical. He's smart. He's fun. Uh, he, he, he loves the game. He, he plays the game to have fun and enjoy it. He always sends that message to our team whenever he gets the chance to say something to him that this is a game and we're doing it to have fun. Let's make sure that we get there and, and, and you know, take it to that, that level always. Um, he's just been a beautiful soul. So I'm very, very grateful for his, you know, his presence with us, and I'm so glad we got a chance to get him back to do this with us again. We wish him uh, good luck in that endeavor, but uh, mostly we wish you and the rest of the team good luck uh, this week against the 49ers down in Santa Clara. It's going to be a, a great game, an exciting game, and we really look forward to it. Thanks, Pete, for your time. All right, Rapes, got it. See you. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. So one of the bigger celebrity trends in 2023 is the tale of the old and the young. Apparently older men, now this is not a new trend, but I guess in 2023 it just sort of got a new highlight. Mm -hmm. Older men marrying and having kids with younger women, and we mean much younger women. Why has this trend become so prominent this year? Mickey is here to explain. Yeah, it's become prominent because a lot of older men, from what this article is talking about, um, are trying to revitalize their life, relive their youth. So, you know, remember when Al Pacino 82 years old, welcomed his fourth child Mm. with his girlfriend, Noor, who's 29 years old. Robert De Niro, 80, had a daughter with Tiffany Chen. She's 45. Um, Actor Rufus Swell, he got engaged to Vivian Benitez. He's 54. She's 26. Mm, And just so you know, there are more and more older men who are saying, "Okay, I like this trend. Maybe. I mean, I'm not a man, so I don't know. I'm merely speculating. Yes, please speculate wildly. Perhaps (laughs) some men 
you know, grow up and are like, listen, I, I, I want a relationship. I don't want children. I want to travel. I want to build my career. I want to buy a home. And by the time all of those goals are met, maybe they're in their 50s. And now they're like, I want to have a family. I think it's time. I've I've done my bucket list and now it's time to have a family. So who's fertile? <laughs> a 40-year-old woman? No. So men yeah. are looking for younger women to build that family. I'm starting to even even when I'm out and about uh, at the mall going around, I'm saying I'm like, "Oh my god, your dad is so nice." That's not my dad, that's my husband. Yeah. Oh, I apologize. I'm so sorry. Oh, and that's your ifit. Oh. That's your baby. It's not your grandkid or your great grandkid. Right. Uh So older men dating younger women in their 20s. Because why? Well, because they're fertile and they can have children and build that family. Except that some of the examples you gave, this is like their third or their fourth. Or like, you know, there's Leonardo DiCaprio, who's like just serial dates women and get to 25. And then they're like, nope, we're breaking up. Do you want a baby when you're in your 80s, though? I mean, isn't that the time to go on cruises and, you know, like. (laughs) Have grandkids and then give them back to their parents. exactly. When we were off mic, Kate, you were talking about oh, how, yeah. you know, the dating Let's scene. Let's, Let's hear, hear it. it. Go yeah. I don't think this is a celebrity exclusive thing because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, this is well documented. I'm single. I'm on the dating apps, those sort of things. And <laughs> men in their 40s, even their 50s or their late 30s are looking for an age range of 25 year old girls. And the women who are in there, a little bit older than that, shall we say, are asking, you know, why are you why are you looking for girls in their early to mid 20s? And they can't really answer that because because it just so we get shafted, essentially, uh, because we are I've had people told me tell me you're too old. Like, have you gotten any work done or anything like that? And I'm kind of like, this has to be an ego thing. This has to be a, a like I can get a young 20-something, because I can't imagine that you honestly think you have that much compatibility with someone who's 20 years younger than you. Well, and can I say, I mean, I not to bring up the sort of dark reason why I think these men want to be with younger women, but I think part of it has to do with control, right? I think it's part of it is if it's a younger woman, they feel like they're depending on you more and you feel like you have more control in that relationship. Sure. And I don't think that's something that we necessarily want to dive into too much because yeah. it's kind of murky territory. But I do think that is a factor that that's no, at play. Right. And, and to be clear, we got a couple of texts that mm-hmm. said, you know, hey, I'm with younger people. My wife's 30 years younger, et cetera. That's fine. You know, if you meet <gasps> someone, Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta-Jones, remember when that happened? If you meet yeah. someone and you go, you know, Harrison Ford, that happens. That, that happens. But yeah. if you're looking for that, if you're specifically going, I want someone in that age category, that's a little bit different than I happen to meet this person. We happen to fall in love. Well, that's what happened with me and my wife. Yeah. I mean, we're we're almost six years younger. And I broke up with her three times because I said, no, you're just you're, you're too, too young. young. You're in your 20s. I'm in my 30s. I'm on a different path. And she just kept saying, no, you're not breaking up yeah. with me. And I just thought, oh, my God, we're in two. I already had a career. She was still in school. But I tell you what, I mean, love I love knows no obstacles. Right. And she, that's what she would say. She goes, love doesn't have an age. You know, it doesn't matter. And then finally, I married the woman. I put her through med school. And now <laughs> she's still lovely. Together. I just got a chance to meet her. Thank you lovely very much. Woman. By the way, just got a text. Other than money, what is the reason a 25-year-old woman would date a 50-plus-year-old man? Security. Boats. In Seattle. <laughs> I can tell you that. I 
I when I'm out on my paddleboard in South Lake Union, I see these giant yachts with these fifty plus year old men, a cute oh, little twenty five year old. Oh, there wow. you go. That's the reason. Boat.